0: This is the Visible Hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Melanie Wasserman, who is an assistant professor of economics at the UCLA Under School of Management. Today we will be talking about her paper, Hours Constraints, Occupational Choice and Gender, Evidence from Medical Residence, which is forthcoming at the Review of Economic Studies. Melanie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: But, Melanie, there are a lot of explanations about why women earn, on average, less than men, even within occupations. This paper of yours focuses on testing a hypothesis put forward by Claudia Goldin. Could you start by describing what this hypothesis is?
1: Yes, absolutely. So first I wanna you know just take a step back and kind of situate maybe our listeners in terms of this kind of landscape with the gender gaps in pay and wages. So there's been, I would say substantial kind of convergence in men's and women's pay over the last 40 to 50 years one really kind of striking pattern is the entry of women en masse into professional occupations. So we can think about, you know, what was going on in the 1970s when, you know, female representation in certain professional occupations was quite low. So you can think about entry into medicine, into law, into into business. Um, and over the last 50 years, Entry into these occupations by women has increased by, you know, over a factor of five, and now there's near kind of near equal representation of men and women um, in terms of the new entrance into these large professional occupations. Despite the fact that women have kind of entered into these professional occupations and mass, there remain persistent kind of earnings disparities between men and women. So recent estimates suggest that among kind of highly skilled full time workers there are earnings disparities between, you know, 16 and 28 percent. And so this really has, you know, prompted researchers to look within these kind of broad occupational categories for answers. And that's exactly what Claudia Golden has done in her, you know, 2014 AA presidential address. So what she posits is that, you know, in certain kind of broad occupations, such as, lawyers or, um, you know, finance professionals, there are, you know, convex returns, that is nonlinear returns to working long, unpredictable and continuous hours. And what that means is that, you know, there are kind of very um, steep financial returns or monetary returns to working these kind of Rigid hours in these occupations. And, you know, women on average tend to kind of work fewer hours than men, which positions them to be kind of less likely to reap these returns associated with working long hours. Okay. So, what I do in this paper is I want to kind of test this hypothesis rigorously by examining whether the long hours of a large professional occupation. Do indeed inhibit the entry of women and kind of explain, can help explain some of the remaining determinants of the gender pay gap.
0: But just to be clear about this hypothesis, the Golden Hypothesis, correct me if I'm wrong, will not be the initial explanation for the differences in pay, but an amplifier of these initial differences. That is, there has to be something else let it be preference or maybe something else that is making men and women work different hours. And then the convexity is just amplifying these initial differences. Is that correct? Is my understanding correct?
1: Yeah, I would say that's exactly right. So what I mentioned just a minute ago is that women on average are you know less likely to work these like kind of long hours, unpredictable hours. You can think about overtime shifts or weekend shifts relative to men. And this is just an empirical fact. And you can take a step back and ask, well, well, why the, why is this the case? And so here there is, I would say, voluminous research. Documenting that you know women, on average, relative to men, tend to engage in more hours of household production—that is, time spent on childcare, child rearing, other dimensions of household production, um, such as you know household chores. These kind of external constraints may differentially affect their capacity to engage in the labor market. And we can ask, okay, well, why do women, you know, face these greater external constraints relative to men? I
0: I wanted to ask that because as a man who engages in a lot of household production, (laughs) I am very aware that this is a choice or at least that there is something else, you know, that it's it's, it's external to the firm or to the employer in some sense, right? We don't have to go into the detail as to why this is the case, but the hypothesis needs something else.
1: Yes. And so there are a variety of hypotheses for why women might be kind of more externally constrained in this dimension than men. And so one relates to gender norms. So, you know, historically, women have engaged in more household production than men. This appears in kind of more kind of gender traditional societies relative to more progressive societies, and this could help explain these gender differences in um, you know, engaging in childcare responsibilities, household production. Another possibility is comparative advantage within the household. So because of existing gender disparities in the labor market, it could be that within a given household, they are, you know, in some sense, making a rational decision for the woman to work less than the man, just because maybe the woman earns less than a man in a, you know, like in a heterosexual household. Yes.
0: And just sticking for a time being to this hypothesis, why is it that this convexity Uh, arises or is hypothesized to arise, is it that uh, maybe marginal productivity also evolves in a convex way or productivity evolves in a convex way with the number of hours work or is it something else about the employment relation that creates this uh, convexity between hours work and wages?
1: Yeah, so I think that this is a pretty deep question, and you know what Claudia Golden suggests in her paper is that there does appear to be a a return to working long hours in this in the sense that there is a return in certain occupations, such as you know financial occupations or being a lawyer, you know, kind of client serving occupations, to having like face to face interaction or maintaining um, interaction between the kind of service provider, maybe like the lawyer and the client. And so this could kind of generate a more productive working relationship relative to having kind of a more kind of interrupted relationship. So that is one, one possibility. I think another possibility is that, the, you know, these are kind of relics from like a bygone era, you know, in the sense of the kind of medical profession, it's it's sometimes um, hard to understand why there might be um, these very large returns to working long hours. And so I would say my paper really doesn't take a stand on why this relationship exists, why there is a nonlinear return to working long hours. Instead, it sort of takes this relationship as given and um, tries to understand whether um, these long hours do inhibit women's entry into certain occupational settings.
0: So I understand that your paper is a positive paper as opposed to obviously a normative paper, but often we end up papers and at some point there is like a short, often highly speculative <laughs> policy prescription section. And here the origin of the convexity is going to be kind of important because on the one hand, there is the advantage that you want to increase diversity or optimize the allocation of talent. A number of things that you will want to do that are associated with encouraging women to, say, uh, adopt certain specialties or something, we need to know whether there is something else on the cost side, right? I think that in your specific setting of a medical residence, which you are going to tell us about in in a second, I think the the intuition that this is a relic from the past, I, I think is very likely to be true. But in other settings, maybe, you know, maybe there is a certain amount of inefficiency, to introducing the type of reform that that happened here in the medical profession.
1: Yes, so I absolutely agree that it could be context specific. And you know, as you mentioned, we'll get into the medical setting in a bit more detail later, but um, you know, I just wanna say that there are a variety of possibilities for why long hours could emerge. So one is these, um, like there could actually be productivity gains associated with working long hours. Another could be path dependence. Another is, you know, some sort of kind of rat race equilibrium or a setting in which, you know, signaling one's aptitude is through long hours. And we would say that in such a setting, the number of hours that end up being worked is inefficiently high. While I agree it's totally context specific, I think it's important to not maybe start from the notion that these long hours are productive and perhaps remain a bit more agnostic as to the roots of long hours in order to understand whether there are some ways that we can potentially restructure occupations in order to equalize the kind of playing field for men and women in terms of their occupational choices.
0: So we have mentioned that the specific empirical setting that you study here is the medical profession, can you tell us more about it, including uh, what type of doctors you study, uh, what type of uh, stylized facts happen in this type of profession, and what is the reform that uh, whose effects you study here?
1: Yeah, so absolutely. So just reiterating the hypothesis that I am investigating in this paper, there is this notion that nonlinear returns to working long, continuous, and particular hours in certain occupational settings might be kind of a root of gender differences in pay that these kind of rigid time demands may disproportionately deter women from entering certain positions and in this paper what i have is you know the chance to empirically assess whether an occupation's time demands do indeed differentially inhibit women from entering these kind of high paying occupational settings or high paying tracks within occupations and what i do in this paper is i focus on one broad occupation physicians And I study a policy change that occurred back in 2003 in the U.S. known as the ACGME 2003 duty hour reform. ACGME stands for Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. So this was the ACGME 2003 duty hour reform. And what it did is it capped the average number of hours per week that medical residents in the U.S. could work. So medical residents are physician trainees, so they have graduated from medical school and they are doing an extended on-the-job training period before they can be a fully licensed, you know, fully trained physician.
0: Like an apprenticeship.
1: Yes, I would say it's like an apprenticeship. And so um, similar to an apprenticeship, pay during this period is depressed relative to when they are fully trained. And so it's an extended time period after medical school in which they receive a lot of on-the-job training. Hours during this period are known to be incredibly high. So when thinking about kind of the life cycle of a physician, the time demand during the residency training period are the highest relative to kind of every other part of their career. And what I do is I study the effects of this policy, which reduce the hours of medical residents in order to understand the ramifications of reducing hours on women's entry into specific tracks within medicine known as medical specialties. So you can think about a medical specialty being something like dermatology or urology or general surgery. And so what this reform did is it differentially reduced the hours of certain medical specialties relative to others, which really sets up a nice setting to understand the ramifications of um, an occupation's time demands for men's and women's willingness to enter that occupation. So I would say this is a pretty unique setting.
0: There are some specialties, like neurosurgery, in which the residents work many more hours than in others. And these specialties are also associated with higher pay, right? At least this type of correlation would be like a a necessary condition for the Claudia Golden hypothesis to be true. If, If that was not true, that the same specialties that have more hours also have more pay, then we wouldn't even be starting this paper let's say right yes and now the, the question is well is it the fact that women do not choose certain specialties the result of this like a very long hours and as this reform that reduce exogenously the number of hours allow more women to be willing to choose these specialties
1: yes that's exactly right and so you know to give you a sense the hours of medical specialties prior to this reform they varied substantially during residency and so for instance in neurological surgery the hours of medical residents on average you know per week were in excess of 110 so you can imagine that this basically entails you know spending some nights at the hospital Whereas the hours in um, other specialties, such as pathology or dermatology, hovered, you know, under sixty per week. So there was a lot of variation in the hours of medical specialties. And just as you were saying, There's also a substantial variation in earnings, both total earnings and hourly earnings by medical specialty after residency. So during residency, the, I would say, earnings of physicians is um, pretty compressed. The earnings distribution is pretty compressed. Where you really see the variation emerge is when they're fully trained, so post-residency. And indeed, the specialties that have kind of the highest hours during residency are those that have the highest compensation after residency is over. So this is, I would say, one interpretation of kind of the golden hypothesis where it's not contemporaneous returns to working long hours. I would say it is kind of future returns to working long hours. And this is characteristic of other professional occupations, such as, you know, investment bankers or lawyers or even management consultants, where we think that there is a very time intensive early career period, which eventually leads to a lot of compensation, high compensation later on, thinking about being kind of a partner track lawyer, for example.
0: So, I mean, you say characteristic, but I will call it more like extreme, right? Like 110 hours per week is 15 hours a day for every day of the week. And this is the average in the profession. So presumably not everybody is working the same, so there are some people above the average. Obviously, this is a good setting that you have a certain reform and everything, but it also feels like a proof of concept type of study in that if you don't find this, say, female preference or, or a tendency you know, to work less hours and, and to be constrained in the choice of certain specialties for the brutality of the hours that they are associated with, if you don't find it here, you are really not going to find it anywhere else, right? Because this is an extreme profession.
1: I agree and I disagree with that. Um, So, you know, on the one hand, I agree that the hours among uh, resident physicians are extreme, okay? So there are only a few other professional occupations such as investment bankers, I would say partner track lawyers, tenure track academics who work hours that kind of rival resident physicians but in you know i think that resident physicians are are a bit of an outlier in terms of their hours even among those professional occupations In that sense, I do agree that if, you know, we didn't see that a reduction in hours in this domain, kind of this extreme high hours domain in the physician profession um, affected women's occupational choices, then perhaps we wouldn't see it anywhere. On the other hand, it's not like the hours reduction due to this reform was so substantial to make, um, you know, medicine more of a, like, family-friendly occupation. You know, it's not like it was going, the hours were going in, you know, neurosurgery from 110 to 60. As we'll discuss, this policy actually capped the average number of hours per week at 80 which we would say is still quite extreme. And so, you know, on the one hand, the hours started off extreme. And so we think that any improvement might be a substantial improvement. But on the other hand, the improvement resulted in hours of, you know, maybe around 80, a bit higher, since a lot of programs weren't in compliance with the reform. And so it's unclear whether this is kind of a a meaningful enough improvement to induce, uh, you know, changes in occupational choices.
0: So your point is taken. However, I will say that if the cost function is also convex, as we will agree that it is here, a reduction of a single hour in moving from 110 to 109, that would be fantastic, right? So it's not like we don't have to interpret, I mean, 110 to 80, that's a lot. I know that the reduction is in practice is also four on average, et cetera. But, you know, given that the number is so high, the value of the marginal hour is also really high.
1: Yes, that's true. And so, you know, I, uh, I guess in answer to your question, you know, I can only say that, you know, say what I find, which is that, you know, it, it does seem to matter. Um, but I think that there are so, and I do agree that, you know, any uh, additional hour gained, um, you know, hour uh, not spent working is probably extremely valuable. And then it's, you know, it's a matter of whether it's valuable enough to induce occupational switching.
0: Just to be clear, I didn't mean this as a criticism among other things, because most of my work is with single firm data. So I'm not going to criticize somebody doing work with single profession data.
1: Yeah. And just, well, just one more, you know, one more comment on this. Physicians are a huge profession, you know, profession in the US. So I think that there are about a million physicians in the US. And so we we don't think that this is, you know, such an anomalous professional setting that I think it's that it's unimportant. But I do agree with you that, you know, once you start kind of looking at the early career hours of physicians relative to even other professional occupations, you do see that they are a bit of an outlier.
0: Okay. So you have this reform that happened in 2003 by the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education that said to the hospitals or programs around the U.S., You can only be accredited if you commit to not make your residents work more than 80 hours a a week. And you were telling us earlier that certain specialties were associated with more or less hours a week. Where did you get that information? Where, Where is the data that was telling you how many hours per week residents in different specialties were working?
1: Yeah, So this is a great question. It was, I would say, one of the most difficult data collection parts of this project was collecting hours of medical residents. Here, you know, what I did in order to collect data on the pre-policy hours of medical residents, so this is before the 2003 policy went into effect, to kind of get a sense of the the lay of the land in terms of these pre-policy differences between specialties and the hours worked, is I relied on Survey data from a very nice, kind of nationally representative survey run by a um, medical researcher named Baldwin. And this was a 1998-1999 survey of medical residents where just asked them the hours that they worked per week and it provided just specialty level um, statistics on the average hours worked by medical residents.
0: So there are only seven specialties in this Baldwin data, whereas you are using around 20 specialties in most of your analysis. How do you assign... The specialties from Baldwin to the specialties of the other data.
1: Just a note: so the Baldwin data actually has it has twenty one specialties. It's another survey that I that I leverage. This survey by Chris Landrigan that only has like seven or eight specialties. In this project, I had to do a lot of crosswalking. Between more detailed specialty categories and coarser specialty categories, depending on the data availability. So, for instance, you know, in this Baldwin survey, I had um, access to the average hours per week worked by medical residents across 20, 21 specialties. But what I wanted to do is figure out whether the reform actually affected the hours worked by medical residents, and for this, what I needed was data on the hours of medical residents after the policy went into effect. And this was particularly tricky. So the ACGME, this Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, they are the ones who initiated this policy, monitor the efficacy of this policy, enforce this policy. Alongside their monitoring, they collect a lot of data. And this data is in the form of surveys from medical residents. But my understanding from talking to individuals throughout the medical community, to talking to individuals who were medical residents, is that the data collected by kind of the monitoring arm of this policy is um, tends to be unreliable for a variety of reasons. So. One, residents do not want to report or may be hesitant to report violations of this reform since it might get their residency program in trouble. Their residency program loses accreditation, you know, while they're doing residency, this would also not be good for the resident as well. Another thing that I heard is that if a resident actually indicated that they were working in excess of, you know, 80 hours per week, then it triggered kind of a bunch of other questions on the survey, which, you know, um, kind of heightened the kind of demands associated with taking the survey and reporting um, excessive hours. And so, you know, while there appears to be a wealth of data collected by um, the ACGME, I didn't necessarily think that this data was suitable to assess the effic- efficacy of the of the reform on um, resident hours worked. And so, for that reason, it was really important to turn to um, surveys conducted by researchers that were independent of this agency. Here, what you were talking about is this, you know, second set of surveys where there was really only aggregate data provided on um, seven medical specialties. And so, you know, I did what I could. So I took the 20 kind of broad specialties from the pre-policy data, and I crosswalked it to the seven even broader specialties from the post-policy data. And what that entailed was in order to aggregate the smaller specialties to the larger specialties, what I did is I just created a kind of a weighted sum of the hours worked in the smaller specialties to kind of aggregate up to this like larger specialty level, so and the and the weights were the fraction of residents who were um, who were in each of those specialties. So based on this kind of like data collection and data crosswalking, what I was able to do was cobble together you know what we call kind of like a first stage. So you know did the reform actually have an effect on hours worked? And um, this wasn't kind of the uh, best case scenario first stage, but I think it did show that in the most time intensive specialties, there were larger reductions in hours worked from before to after the policy went into effect relative to the least time intensive specialties.
0: So, difference in difference regression, specialty fixed effects, year fixed effects, then you do the interaction between the post period and the number of hours that a specialty was a, that residents in a specialty were working according to the Baldwin data, and then on the left-hand side the reduction in hours that you match using this crazy like rule of assigning 20 specialties to seven and so on, and that is like a a first stage that is not going to map precisely with the second stage on the other side, but at least you some, again, some type of like indication that uh, the necessary condition that this was binding somewhat. That's
1: exactly right. Yeah. So, what I wanted to make sure of you know, was that the, the specialty variation that I was leveraging, so the fact that there were some specialties that had hours far in excess of the 80-hour cap prior to the reform, there were other specialties that had hours well below the 80-hour cap before the reform, that this variation did indeed kind of produce the patterns that I was expecting in terms of the effects of the reform, that is, the most time-intensive specialties experienced larger reductions in hours relative to the least time-intensive specialties.
0: Okay, so if I'm thinking of applying to be a neurosurgeon, I was scared of the 110 hours before, now I'm less scared, which means that my choice, especially if I'm a woman, may be different. How do you measure the left-hand side variable? What is the data that you use to measure these type of choices?
1: Yes, So what I turn to is a data set from the American Medical Association. It's called the American Medical Association Physician Master File, and what it has is information on every physician in the U.S., and here they have a wealth of information about physicians, Um, and the information that I use is their specialty choice, And so this is one data set that gives me kind of their, I would say medium term specialty choice since their specialty that they're working in, their specialty choice is kind of updated over time. So I have another data set called the GME Census Track, the Graduate Medical Education Census Track data, which is a survey of residency program directors. And what it asks residency program directors is the number of people in each year in their residency program. So a residency program is specific to a medical specialty. So you can be thinking about uh, like Mass General Hospital in Boston. You can be in a residency program in dermatology there, in general surgery there, and so on. And so this is a survey of residency program directors asking them essentially for like a census of who's in their program, and it does so by gender. And so this allows me to examine not only, I would say, kind of the medium run um, effects of the reform in terms of specialty choices, but also the effects of the reform, this duty hour reform on initial specialty choice.
0: So is it the case that the first data set, the one from the American Medical Association is at the individual physician level, whereas the second is at the program level?
1: Yes, that's exactly right.
0: So what is the actual regression that you run?
1: So what I do using the American Medical Association data is I, well, I do a few different things, but the main specification in the paper is a conditional logit specification.
0: What is a conditional logit?
1: A conditional logit specification is a discrete choice approach for modeling decision-making and so, specifically, what it handles nicely are situations like this in which there is, you know, multiple unordered outcomes, such as the choice of a medical specialty. So, what it does is it models the probability that, you know, an individual, a physician, chooses a particular specialty, such as, you know, dermatology or um, general surgery or pathology. And it models it as kind of depending on whatever you kind of specify. But in this case, it is you know modeled based on a host of kind of specialty characteristics, and in some cases, physician characteristics.
0: So the critical thing about the conditional logic, so with a regular logic, discrete decision making, the individual choose between taking the decision or not, a one or a zero. But here, taking a one decision, means that you have to put a zero decision on all the alternatives, right? Because if you choose neurosurgery, you cannot choose dermatology because you only have one career, right? And that introduces like an interdependency between the characteristics of this specialty that you might be attracted to and the characteristics of alternative specialties. That is, if this specialty has certain good characteristics, you are more likely to choose it. But if other specialties... Have certain good characteristics, you are less likely to choose the specialty, right? Like, this is, I think, the conditional part, no? Like, I think it's a good choice that you make because here there are always 20 possibilities uh, in your data set, right? Like, because there are 20 specialties.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And so, you know, when thinking about whether to use something like OLS instead of using a um, like discrete choice specification, This is essential. So, you know, in OLS, you can think about just modeling specialty shares. You can do this at the aggregate level and look at how do the specialty shares of women kind of shift um, before and after this policy change alongside kind of the time intensity of these specialties. But I think what the OLS specification really lacks is this kind of interdependence, the notion that if you do choose one specialty you are not choosing another specialty and this interdependence is exactly kind of encapsulated by this discrete choice specification so if you're choosing dermatology you are not choosing you know neurological
0: surgery i mean in addition to this being a conditional logit the specification has the standard shape of a difference in differences correct
1: Yes, that's right. So in particular, what I do is I look at the propensity to choose a kind of more versus less time intensive specialty before and after the policy, the duty hour reform went into effect. And so in practice, this looks like, you know, in some sense, a standard difference in differences specification, where what I have is um, no specialty fixed effects. The time intensity of a specialty kind of prior to the policy change, and I interact that time intensity with various post indicators. So an indicator for whether an individual is in a you know graduating from medical school after the policy change went to effect.
0: What do you find as your baseline results?
1: So my main finding is that When a medical specialty reduces its hours in order to come into compliance with this reform, um, women are more likely to enter that specialty. In contrast, men, men's choices seem to be somewhat invariant to this policy change. If anything, there is a slight decrease in men's propensity to enter a kind of more time intensive specialty after it reduces its hours.
0: Can you give us an idea of the economic magnitude of maybe the the female estimate?
1: Yes. So in order to do so, there are some technical reasons for why I do this. But in order to get a sense of kind of the economic magnitude, what I do is actually I turn to kind of a different specification, an OLS specification, so that kind of the first stage and the reduced form specifications are similarly specified. And what I do is I kind of scale up the effects of the reform, the reduced form effects of this policy by the change in the hours worked due to this policy. And so I place certain bounds on the effects of this policy on hours worked, since as we talked about, I only have you know these estimates from seven specialties. But what I do when I put everything together, what I find is that, you know, a reduction of four hours per week in a specialty's residency hours causes a 5 to 15% increase in the share of women who choose a specialty.
0: That is fine. But one thing that I want to emphasize here is that these are lifetime decisions that are affected by four hours work during just four years, right? That This is not the effect of working four hours on your credit choice during the whole of your career, but instead during a very short period relative to the rest of your career, right? So we have to also amplify these magnitudes by the fact that these choices are being taken in the very short term, but they will have implications for the long term.
1: Yes, that's right. And so I think that this is a really important point that... This reform only affected the hours worked during medical residency. It did not govern, did not have you know any kind of jurisdiction over hours worked once physicians uh, finished medical residency and entered you know full you know fully trained uh, you know professional practice. And so one might wonder, why would folks be making these kind of lifetime decisions based on a transitory change in hours worked during their early careers? And I think, you know, there are maybe a couple of reasons why, you know, this could be the case. So, you know, first, um, you know, medical residency can span three to seven years, depending on your choice of medical specialty. The more time intensive specialties tend to be the longer residencies as well. So thinking like, you know, something like neurological surgery or, or general surgery, they can um, stretch on to about seven years. And then if you choose to kind of subspecialize, so, you know, maybe you decide initially to do internal medicine, but then you decide to further specialize and become a cardiologist, then medical residency can stretch on, you know, an additional three to four years. And so this isn't, you know, such a short time period that, you know, it's not just kind of like a one-year time period. So it does kind of take up perhaps a substantial fraction, especially of those early career years. The second thing that I'll note is that the timing of medical residency tends to coincide with, you know, when individuals are starting to think about, you know, having kids. So it kind of coincides with these kind of key family formation years. So the average age at medical school graduation is about 28 And this is because, you know, uh, in the U.S., you first have to complete a bachelor's degree and then go on to medical school. Medical school is is four years. Oftentimes, people take some gap years between their bachelor's degree and going on to medical school. So this positions people to, you know, graduate from medical school when they are around 28. And so that means that they're doing medical residency in their late 20s and early 30s, which is when professionals tend to start to have kids. And so, you know, the other thing that I'll note is that, you know, because women tend to be, as we talked about just at the beginning of our conversation, tend to be kind of more constrained, have external constraints um, when they have kids relative to men. This positions them to be kind of more sensitive to um, residency time demands relative to their kind of male counterparts.
0: Their fertility Years also last for less.
1: Exactly. And so that's that's the last thing that I was going to mention is that, you know, this time period of medical residency is kind of characterized by like limits on intertemporal substitution. And what I mean by that is that during medical residency, it's really hard to kind of like shift around your hours worked. So there are very limited opportunities for part-time work. If you decide to take time off, you know, uh, in order to have a child, in order to take perhaps an extended parental leave from having a child, this can potentially set you back an entire year in terms of your training, just because of the yearly kind of requirements set by specialty boards. Another limit on intertemporal substitution is in terms of fertility. And so it may be costly not only in terms of like shifting around your hours worked or your weeks worked, it could be costly in terms of, you know, shifting around when you have kids because of, you know, potentially declining fecundity during one's thirties.
0: So one thing that we have been discussing throughout or assuming throughout is that all these like propensity of woman to take certain specialties because of the hours constraint has the applicants as uh, at the origin, right? That it is uh, the decision by the woman, maybe constrained by certain social norms or whatever else, you know, that is the origin of these decisions. But what you have on the left-hand side is not the applications. What you have on the left-hand side is the actual joining of the programs. How do we know that it is not that the programs wanted to have like 110-hour week residencies. And then they thought, well, only men are going to put up with this, so we should only uh, take men. But then when they are constrained by the 80-hour limit, they start realizing, oh, maybe it will be okay to have a woman or two.
1: Yeah, this is a great question. So you're absolutely right that what I observe in some sense is like the equilibrium outcome. So I observe like the ultimate choice or the, I wouldn't say choice, the ultimate specialty outcome of an individual. Um, not necessarily what they're, I don't observe their preferences, I don't observe their kind of unconstrained choices. And so in the paper, it was important to try to understand whether the patterns that I observed, the fact that women are more likely to enter these time intensive specialties after their hours are reduced, whether this was driven by physicians or medical residents changing their preferences for specialties, or it was driven by, you know, residency programs changing their preferences for who they want to hire. And so I can shed light on, I would say, one side of this. So like the labor supply side of this, whether residents actually change their preferences for specialties by looking at a survey of new matriculants into medical school. So this is a survey of first year medical school students, and it just asks them about their most preferred specialties. And so we might think that this would be their more unconstrained choice in terms of specialties absent what's going on kind of on the employer side. There are some caveats there. You know, if you think that even your expressed kind of most preferred specialty is taking into consideration your likelihood of getting a position, but I think that this is really getting closer to kind of isolating medical school students' preferences over medical specialties. And what I find is something actually very similar to my kind of main results for specialty choice or specialty outcomes, which is that after the reform goes into effect, you see that female students are more likely to say that their most preferred specialty is one of these very time-intensive specialties relative to kind of before the reform took place.
0: You have a section called Implications for Talent Allocation. What do you do there?
1: What I do is I investigate not only how the reform affected the propensity of men and women to enter medical specialties, but I also look at kind of the type of man or type of woman who selects in. So is it that this reform, so which reduces the hours of medical residents, is attracting more talented physicians or less talented physicians? And, you know, there are a variety of reasons why, you know, we think that Relaxing the hours could change the talent allocation of physicians.
0: You're thinking here of the marginal, the marginal woman who enters certain, say, higher specialties after the reform, correct?
1: Yes, that's right. So I look at the marginal woman who is induced to enter a specialty due to the reform, due, induced to enter a more time-intensive specialty due to the reform. What I do is I proxy the talent or the quality of that physician using um, whether they attended a ranked medical school. So these are medical schools that are ranked by Um, U.S. News and World Report. And, you know, this has been, I would say, a controversial ranking system in the press recently. Um, But this was sort of the best that I could do in terms of getting at kind of a proxy for the quality of medical residents. And what I find is, if anything, that the reform seemed to induce um, slightly lower quality women into more time-intensive specialties I think that this is consistent with, you know, a story in which ours were actually serving as kind of a barrier to entry for women into these um, kind of highly time-intensive, highly compensated specialties. And because it was a barrier to entry, only kind of the most qualified women, the high, you know, were, were entering these specialties prior to the, to the reform. Relaxing this barrier actually, you know, allowed us to start going a little bit further kind of down into the quality distribution or the talent distribution.
0: So if you want to tell me about this fact, as let's say, theory-free, I, I take it. It's, you know, it's fine. It seems... You know the reform made the the, the marginal woman who joined uh, after the reform it was a little bit worse. That this is okay, but now in thinking about the barriers to entry and and how they translate, you know, into the uh, quality of the woman who who who, who passes barriers or not, I find it very easy to understand these barriers to entry if they are uh, labor demand based. That is, imagine that. Uh, Going to the example that I was giving you earlier, imagine that I am a program that uh, doesn't really like uh, women because I don't trust that they will be happy to work 110 hours. But of course, if I find somebody extremely able, I am willing to stop my discrimination against women and take that one. And then as the constraint on the hours uh, arrives, you know, I don't have the same type of incentive to discriminate and then I'm happy to take to take more women, and then the marginal woman is a bit worse. The barriers to entry from this perspective, I understand very well. But we have been kind of discussing throughout that these barriers are, if you want, labor supply generated. To me, it is a little bit theoretically less obvious why the marginal woman entering the high hours speciality is going to become worse if it is coming from the preferences side, right? Uh, I don't have a story you know, in my mind to make that prediction. So I I wanted, you know, to push you a little bit to tell me what is the specific form that your barrier to entry takes uh, that has this prediction?
1: Yes, and so, you know, I agree with you that, you know, in this scenario, it does seem like it would make more sense if it was labor demand, that the barrier was labor demand driven. You know, I don't want to, uh, I would say, speculate too much on barrier to entry coming from kind of the external constraints or the labor supply side that would give rise to this. What I'll say is that, you know, I included this section in the paper because I thought it was, you know, important to examine, important to document. Um, these effects are pretty small. And, you know, one thing that I note in the paper is that this, this proxy for quality is, is pretty coarse. And so could be that, you know, a ranked medical school is just not capturing all of the kind of uh, granularity in the kind of talent distribution that might occur kind of within a medical school. So here, you know, I'm sort of trying to, you know, have it both ways, you know, kind of argue that the paper is primarily, the dynamics in the paper are primarily due to kind of external constraints coming from like the supply side, but um, I agree with you that the barriers to entry story primarily think, relies on like a labor demand story.
0: So just to, just to conclude, I wanted to go back to the beginning, which is the golden uh, hypothesis, which was a relation between hours worth and pay. I can see how your paper speaks very well to the fact that well, there are certain specialties in which the hours are higher, And clearly women were interested in taking the specialties, but were stopped by the brutality of the hours. The reform takes place, more women enter. You know, this is clear. If if you want to take this back to the golden hypothesis, we will now have to link it back to wages. So presumably, maybe there should be some type of regression in which we have the estimated salaries of the women and the men on the left-hand side and the reform on the right-hand side to close the full circle, okay, such that we can see that the reform led not just to an increase in um, women who go for tennis specialties that are associated with out-of-hours, but also that their average pay increase.
1: Yes, I completely agree. I would have loved to have had access to, um, you know, a data set that has um, not only um, physician specialty choice, but also some, you know, metric of their earnings. Unfortunately, I didn't have access to such data.
0: Couldn't you have just imputed?
1: Yes. That's exactly what I do in the paper I is I do, you know, what economists call back of the envelope calculation which in some sense is a rough calculation that embeds a lot of assumptions but just to get a sense of how the reallocation of women across specialties due to the reform could result in implications for gender pay gaps among among physicians. And essentially what I do is just look at kind of the pre-policy kind of specialty um, distribution among women and men. And then I look at the post-policy specialty distribution induced by the reform. I assign at the specialty level hourly earnings of each specialty. And then I look at the implications of the rearrangement of women due to the reform for their hourly earnings. And so um, what I find based on this is that the rearrangement of women kind of due to the reform could close the physician hourly earnings gap by 11%. Now, what I want to note is, you know, the reason why this is a back-of-the-envelope calculation, a rough calculation, and not kind of a more precise metric of, you know, the implications of the reform for gender gaps in physician pay is that, you know, one, I am imputing average specialty hourly earnings at the specialty level to both women and men, so I'm not taking into consideration kind of like those gender gaps in specialty hourly earnings. I'm not taking into consideration differences in hours worked. Um, across men and women, which could give rise to gender differences in earnings instead of hourly earnings. And so, um, and I'm also not taking into consideration the fact that hourly earnings might change as a result of this reform. So there are a lot of kind of embedded assumptions here that I just wanted to kind of highlight. So this reform does have the you know, capacity to close physician pay gaps, but ultimately it will be an empirical question whether, whether it does so.
0: Thank you, Melanie, for coming to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to any other papers that we may have discussed. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.